Hey folks, welcome to this special edition of Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and today I'm going to walk you through what I've come up with to get my group back on track for the adventure we've been creating during the course of this second season of the podcast. Now, normally I've got a whole spiel I use when I'm doing the opening, but if you're listening to this episode, you know the drill. And since this is really going to be a pretty short show, I just want to get down to the build itself. Of course, why I'm having to do this requires a little bit of an explanation. So let me just take a minute to lay it out. I noted that in the last session my group ran, they completed the Lime Ferry mission, which is the one that took them into northern Jefferson County. Then they had their encounter with Garson Tactical on the way back. The way we'd written that initially had Garson after them because of the group's action in several of the encounters earlier in the campaign. However, when I was running that night, I realized my group hadn't run the operation to iRobotics and therefore hadn't actually done a lot of the things that would have caused Garson to want them either dead or captured. That's one of the major reasons I allowed the mysterious stranger to intervene on their behalf. So, like I said a week ago, I'm stuck with a question. Do I go back and figure out how to shoehorn the iRobotics scenes into where we're at now, or should I create another scenario for the group to get into that would both explain why Garson is so annoyed with him and get the group to the point with Garson that they were when we wrote the original scenario? As I said, I've decided to write another scenario, and I'll be running it tonight if you're listening to this when it drops on Saturday. I'm not going to do a full recap of the last session since I'll be doing it in next week's episode, but we do need to note that at the end of that session, Victor seemed confused as to why Garson was after the group. He assured him he'd look into it, and then the group left to gear up. So, we'll pick up with my group at their base of operations on Laclede's Landing the next day. As they make their way through their morning, they're eventually approached by two young ladies. One appears to be about 16 years old, while the other can't be older than 10 or 11. But I'll tell you this, if it wasn't for the age difference, you would swear they were twins. Their raven black hair is cut and styled the same, they have the same thin oval face, and their deep green eyes are nearly identical. They're dressed in shabby flannel shirts, t-shirts, and ripped jeans, and they're wearing old work boots. The older one speaks to the group, identifying herself as Rachel. She doesn't give her last name, but will introduce her sister as Bethany. They're here because they've got a job they need done, and the fellow who owns the bodega in Diamond Pass, Oscar, told him about this group. Now, the group knows Oscar because they've eaten at that bodega a couple times, or they've at least probably stopped in for a Nuka-Cola. So it's not like this is going to be one of those out there, oh my God, how'd you find out about us kind of situations. Rachel reports that men in black uniforms kicked in their door earlier this morning and dragged their parents away. Her father had told her to take Bethany and hide under some rubble behind their house. And when the man came for her, they searched but didn't move the rubble. Once the men left, she gave them a few minutes and then she sprinted off to Diamond Pass for help. She can't give too many details, but she can say the men were wearing black boots, carrying rifles, and the description of those rifles sounds rather familiar, and she was able to make out a patch on the shoulder of one of the men. She can't remember what it said, but she can sketch out the rough outline. And considering the encounter they just had, they can pretty quickly figure it out. Garson Tactical is the group who took her parents. Now, Rachel has no idea why her parents were taken, and since my group's going to roll the check, she's telling the truth. She has no idea what her parents do to make caps, but she will say her dad had a small crate with some things she's willing to give the group as payment. 
She and her sister didn't bring the crate here, but Oscar is holding it for her at the pass. She apologizes profusely for not having any more information to give the group, but she offers them all of the caps she has, which is 20, to get them to come to the pass, see what the reward is, and take the mission. The group's probably going to want a hint as to what's in there, and Rachel's obviously rather naive about things. She will tell them that there are bullets in the crate, and since we know how valuable ammo is, that should get the group's attention. Besides, they're getting 20 caps just to go to the pass and check it out. It doesn't take long to get there, and Oscar's happy to see them. He nods at the girls, and they head to the back of his place. Oscar grabs bottles of Nuka-Cola for everybody and motions to a table. He then grabs a small crate and heads over there himself. He tells them that he's known the girl's parents for quite some time, and the father takes odd jobs from various places in the city to make caps. So far as Oscar knows, they're all legit jobs, or at least not too far on the side of not being legit so as to draw the attention of Garson Tactical. Oscar will tell them where the family lives, and it's just on the other side of the brewery. So while it's not a bad neighborhood, there's a lot of destroyed homes out there. He'll also point out that dozens of families have cleaned them up as best they can and they've settled in. He'll also note that if it was Garson Tactical, they probably took Grant and Gloria, the name of the parents, somewhere south of the landing, but on the riverfront for sure. Oscar says he's heard rumors that Garson has a facility there that they can use to hold and interrogate people they need information from and they need alive. He can't pinpoint the locale, but he believes it's somewhere between Liza's place and the Nuka-Cola factory. He'll eventually crack the small crate and show off the contents. Now, I'm going to put a decent number of rounds for the weapons my group has on here, but since I didn't have the character sheets in front of me when I wrote this, I don't remember all the calibers. There's going to be somewhere between 25 and 40 rounds, plus some cells for laser weapons. I'm also going to drop a half a dozen frag grenades in here. Oscar will allow them to take the grenades, but nothing else. He's going to state that, as it is right now, this is all the girls have left to bargain with. I trust you guys, but I need to look out for the girls. Take care of this, and the rest is all yours. So the group's got two locations to check out, and since the family home is near the potential holding spot, even though it's just a bit to the south, the group may check it out before heading that way, just in case there's something there they don't know about. With my group, they tend to want to know as much as they can before they get themselves into any situation, so I can totally see this. We've noted before in building the campaign that it takes somewhere between a half an hour and 45 minutes to get to the brewery from the pass, and the house is another 20 minutes south and slightly west, so figure in about an hour and 10 for the trip. No encounters along the way, but I'll probably throw enough stuff in here to give them the sense that they're being watched, which is more to up the anxiety than anything else. They'll arrive at the home, and it looks way worse than they've been told. It's basically two rooms with a cooking station set up in the front yard. There's a huge pile of rubble at the back and pieces of what they assume was the roof are sitting on top of it. If they think to check, they can see how the girls hid from Garson. They got under the roof and since they're small enough, they were able to shimmy around and put themselves between the roof and some of the rubble and it would have made it hard for anybody to see them. There are two mattresses on the floor in one of the rooms and an old shabby looking couch in the other with a small table in front of it. There's also a radio on a stand in the corner and it's hooked up to some sort of homemade battery. Right now it's off. The floor is all wood and I know my group, they're going to be searching for loose boards. Here's the deal. 
Nearly all of them are loose, but taking the time to look, which will be 15 to 20 minutes, they'll find a decent sized crate under a couple of boards under one of the mattresses. Now for a crate the size that it is, they'd expect a heck of a lot more than what's in there. There's a hollow tape, a laser pistol with a cell in it, and a vial of oranges liquid marked scorcher. By the way, if you've played Fallout 76, you might have an idea of where I'm going with this scorcher thing. Anyway, Max has a pit boy, so I'm sure they'll put the hollow tape in and give it a listen. A man's shaky voice is what they hear. I should have known it was too good to be true. When the guy in the white suit offered me a thousand caps, I should have been smart enough to know that it wasn't going to be that easy. Just bake into a building and take some vials, he said. Nobody's going to know you're there, he said. I mean, he wasn't all wrong. Getting in was easy. Getting the vials was easy. Getting out, on the other hand, damn near killed me. Mr. Whitesuit never bothered to tell me that Garson was handling the security. It's funny how nobody was on the building when I cased it and broke in, but once I got in there, there was suddenly a whole bunch of them. I had to shoot a bunch of them to get away, and I'm not convinced I got away clean. Well, that turned out to be the least of my problems. Mr. Whitesuit didn't pay me what he owed me. He tossed a hundred caps at me and then had his men beat the crap out of me. He made it clear that nobody would ever believe me if I told him what I did, so I needed to go away and hide. I kept one of the vials. Call it insurance if you want. I've got a feeling he knows, though, because I've seen a lot of guys in black tactical gear in the neighborhood recently. I borrowed a recorder from a friend to record this because if anything happens to me, I want Gloria to have some place to start to get to the bottom of things. The recording ends abruptly after that. So the group now understands what Garson's issue with Grant is, and they're going to need to decide if they're going to finish the job or not. I mean, here's the thing. My group might decide to not do this. I mean, in their minds, Grant shot a bunch of Garson tactical guys while stealing stuff for a guy in a white suit. So they might decide he got what he had coming. However, I do know him. And since they'll figure the guy in the white suit set Grant up, they might decide he's worth busting up. So let me write this out, assuming that they're going to do it. Oh, and for those paying attention at home, the guy in the white suit is Longsworth, which means that when they officially meet him, the group is probably going to put two and two together and tell Victor. But that's for another show, which we will get to in the next month or so. So we've built out the interior of this location previously. What we didn't do is work out the outside. So we'll start there. The holding facility is located about a half a block north of the Nuka-Cola factory, which is the Anheuser-Busch brewery in our time. It's also about 200 feet from what was the edge of the Mississippi River. It's going to be fairly obvious since they'll notice a couple of armed men up on platforms a couple hundred feet in the air acting as overwatch. It's also going to be enough armed guards walking the perimeter to equal one for each group member. And then we're counting the two on overwatch outside of that. And as we've been doing all along, the stats are the Brotherhood of Steel Knight stats on page 383. It's going to be a fight, but they'll eventually get into one of the old cargo containers used as the facility. Inside, they'll hit half the number of Garson guards they had outside, plus a sentry bot. Stats on page 364 and 365. They'll have to take out all the security before they can get into the back where the cells are. No, no call on that one. There's a half a dozen of the cells, but there's only one that has people in it, a man and a woman, and they've all been beat up badly. However, the woman appears to be a carbon copy of the two girls they're working for, so it only goes to reason that the man is Grant. He seems surprised to see anyone coming for him, and he's actually hesitant at first. Once the group convinces him they are who they say they are, he agrees for he and Gloria to leave with them, and he asks that they take him to the past because we've got a friend we can stay with. 
Their return trip will have the group chased by 10 Garson tactical men, which isn't that bad for my group since there are eight of them. If you run this, set it up to be two more than the total number of your group. Now, let's get into the questioning because you know it's coming. Grant admits to doing the job. Heck, he admits to doing a number of small jobs for various people around town. He specifically name drops Melanie Zombrowski and Barnabas O'Reilly. However, the man in the white suit was a new one. He heard he just came to town and someone working for O'Reilly suggested Grant for the job. He asks if they've listened to the holotape and once they tell him they have, he tells them that they now know everything he knows with one exception, which is that he met with the man in the white suit at the Twisted Tap. They get back to the pass. Oscar and the girls are more than happy to see them and Oscar hands over the crate as promised. Grant and Gloria thank the group profusely and promise them that at some point they'll figure out how they can repay them. The group will probably report back to Victor and tell him about what's going on and Victor will note what they've said but will also caution them that this job combined with their last encounter will probably put them high up on the radar of Garson Tactical. That being said, that's all he's got at this point. And before they start the next session after this, I'll have Victor get word to them that Garson now has a 1,000 cap bounty on each of their heads, but he'll also note he's working to get that revoked. That will get us into the job to go support the business in Lime, and that's going to get us back on track, I hope. So that's the end of this special build. Next week, the regular show will have us getting into the next item on the group's to-do list. All Fallout role-playing game materials used on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are utilized on this show for entertainment purposes only. Check out the Modifius Entertainment website at modiphius.net to check out the Fallout game and all of their other fine products. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's campaign build-along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. On Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube and Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we build the next step in our trip to the resolution of our whodunit. Make sure you don't miss that. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table. Uh